the Gospel of Matthew, the sixth chapter, and verse 13 today. Matthew, the sixth chapter, verse 13. There is perhaps uh, no more popular Christmas movie. I'm a pop- I love Christmas movies. Perhaps none more popular, at least for folks my age and, and older, maybe close to my age, than Frank Capra's 1946 classic, It's a Wonderful Life, starring James Stewart as George Bailey and Donna Reed as his wife Mary. You know the story, so we won't go into all that here. I mention it only because it's one of the most well-known movies involving angels. In this case, remember Clarence? George's guardian angel who who was going to help out George because George had decided that his life was not even worth living. Every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. I'm not sure that's how it... You think that's how it works? I'm not sure it's how it works. Are you? No, I'm not either. So it made for a great movie. But there have been lots of real-life stories of angelic interventions and perhaps none more powerful than Reverend John G. Patton, a pioneer missionary who served in the South Pacific Island group known then as the New Hebrides Islands and now Vanuatu. He served in the mid to late 19th century. He gives us this thrilling account of angelic activity. I'll share it with you. Hostile natives had surrounded the mission headquarters and it was, seemed like they were bent on burning down the buildings and killing all of the family. And so John and his wife prayed all through that very difficult and terror-filled night for, that God would deliver them when daylight came, they looked out and they were amazed. All of, those, all of those enemies and attackers had vanished. And a year later, the, the chief of that same tribe was converted to Christianity. And Reverend Patton, remembering what had happened, asked the chief what had kept him, what kept you and your men from burning down our house and, and killing us that fateful night. And the chief replied in surprise, why, it, it was all those men that you had with you. And the missionary answered, there were no men there. It was just my wife and me. And the chief argued, no, no, no. There were, there were hundreds of men standing guard, hundreds of men in shining garments with drawn swords in their hands. They seemed to circle the mission so that we were afraid to attack. And only then did Reverend Patton realize that God had sent his angels to protect them. And the chief agreed there was no other explanation We've all read stories about miraculous, unexplainable events that seem to be just that, incredible interventions by someone or something that's, that's not of this physical world. Maybe some of you even have your own story to tell along those lines. Unfortunately, we've also seen manifestations of evil in our world. We've seen just in the last couple of decades the Twin Towers on 9-11, Horrific mass shootings in Las Vegas, Orlando, at Virginia Tech, at First Baptist Church, Sutherland Springs, Texas, and the names go on and on. We know them too well. Evil men committing, con- evil men committing heinously evil acts upon innocent people. Evil men, monsters. Later on, we saw folk, or earlier before that, we saw monsters like Hitler and Stalin and Mao Zedong and Pol Pot and Idi Amin who murdered millions and millions of innocent men, women and children atrocities that were 
demonic in nature, if not in actuality. Listen, whether we choose to believe it or not, to recognize it or not, the unseen realm of the Spirit exists, and we're often affected, even while we live in this physical world. The Bible teaches that there's a spiritual dimension that's populated by living beings created by God, originally created as angelic beings. They are now divided into spiritual forces aligned either with God or with Satan. We commonly refer to them as angels and demons, of course. And there's a spiritual warfare that is raging right now, which we dare not ignore or make light of. Alexander Solzhenitsyn said the fight for our planet, physical and spiritual, a fight of cosmic proportions, is not a vague matter of the future. It has already started. The forces of evil have begun their de decisive offensive. You can feel their pressure, yet your screens and publications are full of prescribed smiles and raised glasses. What is the joy about? There are forces bent on our destruction and the destruction of our planet. It is very real and into this spiritual reality Jesus teaches us to pray and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil would you please stand and honor the reading of God's word Jesus says to the disciples pray then like this our father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Heavenly Father, as we contemplate this passage of Scripture today and we speak of topics that we don't often speak of, a reality that we cannot see, but your word tells us is there. Would you inform us through your word and your Holy Spirit, help us to understand, Father, what, is, what it is we're up against and who it is we have fighting in our corner. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So I want to pour out some important truths implied in this prayer petition that we're examining today. And first of all, it implies that we are in danger both from sin and Satan. Satan is the great tempter. Now, what, what does the devil do? His number one activity, at least where we are concerned as human beings, is temptation. Both Old and New Testaments consistently represent Satan as the tempter. He was responsible for the first temptation in the garden, right? First one we see in Scripture. And from the garden through the rest of the Old Testament, Satan continues this strategy of trying, trying to drive a wedge between humanity and himself and, and, and God. Think about Job. Satan's intent there in causing Job to suffer was to tempt him to curse God. He said, but stretch out your hand, Satan said to God, and touch all that he has, that is Job, and he will curse you to your face. Satan also tempted King David to make a take a census of Israel. 1 Chronicles 21.1 says, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. David wanted some assurance. I mean, there's nothing wrong with this. It doesn't sound like on the surface. Wanted some assurance of, of, of the fighting men that he had available for battle that day. 
But what Satan did was successfully tempt David to trust in his army rather than in God, which he had done in previous encounters. In the opening pages of the gospel, as we, we saw that earlier in the children's sermon, Satan tempting Jesus to seek power apart from his father's purposes, purposes that included his suffering and his death. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when Peter when Jesus spoke to Peter and said, Get me behind, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. This was not so much an indictment against Peter, you understand, as it was against Satan. Jesus was speaking out against the, the heresy that, that Satan was fomenting that said that Jesus did not have to suffer and die on our behalf. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, 5 speaks about the importance of intimacy between a, a husband and a wife. He says, Do not deprive one another so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In Revelation 2.10, we read, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of, you, some of you into prison that you may be tested. That's the same Greek word translated tempted we read in those earlier verses. Parazzo is the Greek word. The purpose of the false signs and wonders that Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 is to get people to accept the lie. Revelation speaks of the devil as the one who deceives the whole world. Of course, a lot of people twist the biblical teaching about the devil's role into temptation, into, in temptation as an excuse for sin. They say, the devil made me do it. Listen, believe the devil can tempt you, but the devil cannot make you do anything. And beyond that, ever since the fall, the tempta our temptations are rooted in our own selfish desires and attitude, James tells us. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So the devil's role in tempting us, however... Now listen to me, church family. The devil's role in tempting us does not diminish our responsibility in the matter of sin. Whatever the devil does, his purpose is to deceive us. His game plan is to tempt us to abandon our trust in God and to disobey God. And whenever we're tempted to turn away from God, we're listening to a diabolical lie. Satan is not to be trifled with. He is a powerful, scheming liar out to get us. Satan is a real entity. He's a constant threat. All of us are tempted to, to indulge in sinful behavior which can destroy us. He's aligned himself against God. He's also against every child of God, which means that he's against you. He's against me. He's out to destroy us. Spiritual warfare is a reality for you. So this petition implies that we are in danger from both sin and Satan. It also implies that there is a vulnerability on our part. We're powerless to fight this in our own strength. So we need to reach out beyond ourselves for a power that we don't naturally have. We need to pray for power because resenting temptation is a strength that we don't possess naturally. And, and so many don't even try. C.S. Lewis writes, Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation... There we go. I'm going to back up a little bit for you. Oh, I might have left that slide out. This is a really good quote. Listen to this. 
Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. Listen, here it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. More on that in a moment. So the prayer also implies that there's a need for a protector and a deliverer. It points us to God as the only hope that we have to defeat the enemy of our souls. When Jesus died and rose again, he decisively defeated the devil. But yet the devil has not surrendered. He continues to battle. The battles rage on. One day, yes, Jesus will come and he will vanquish Satan and his demonic army for all time. In the meantime, we live in the difficult time between Christ's death and resurrection and his final victory over Satan. And spiritual warfare, I would suggest to you, is in many ways more intense now than it has ever been. We live in a, we live in a period of, of tension where victory is in one sense already and in another sense not yet. So, so how can we defeat the devil and be victorious over sin in our lives? How can we protect ourselves against the attack of the, of the minions of darkness? The Apostle Paul wrote about the warfare we wage in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18. And I want to encourage you to go back and reread that passage. Read it and read it and read it over and over again. You see, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. The real struggle, the one which is at the heart of, of every other struggle, is the one against Satan and his demonic hordes. Make no mistake about it. Did you know, in fact, that there is a demonic hierarchy, much like a military or a governmental organization, even now in place, organized and aligned to promote the agenda of Satan himself? It's true. In Ephesians 6 where we read about rulers and authorities and cosmic powers is speaking of forces that are part of the organizational structure of the enemy. The word that's translated spiritual forces, or one translation renders it world forces, is cosmorocator. In English, cosmocrat. A lot of commentators like F.F. Bruce think that these terms literally refer to the hierarchy of fallen angels. One individual cosmocrat could have been the angel prince of Persia who hindered the angelic messenger sent to Daniel. The demonic cosmocrats of Satan's army are deported everywhere in our nation, infiltrating every segment of society, both secular and ecclesiastical. And their one purpose is to destroy the work of God. Directly and indirectly, they attack God's work, and they're after you. They're after your walk with God. They're after your family. They're after your relationships with others. They attack you through emotions. They attack you through circumstances. And they do not sleep. This is a very real, a very personal struggle. And in your own strength, you are overmatched. To attempt to fight in our own strength would be like trying to put out a forest fire with a toy squirt gun. It would be like trying to fight off a, a lion with a fly swatter. Beloved, what you and I must do is be strong in the Lord and the power of His might, for greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4 remind us that we must endeavor to, 
to operate in the strength of His might. We need spiritual weapons. Allow me to paraphrase that. We are human, but we don't wage war with human plans and methods. We use God's mighty weapons, not merely worldly weapons, to knock down the devil's strongholds. We must fight these dark spiritual forces with God's mighty weapons, spiritual weapons that are at our disposal. We must put on the whole armor of God absolutely and use the weapons of the Spirit, remembering that our Father will not let us be tempted beyond what we are able to bear. Roman soldier carried a, a short sword that was strapped to his side. It was the most common weapon that was used in hand-to-hand combat. It was used both offensively and defensively by the soldiers. Our sword is of the Spirit. It's a spiritual sword that can be used to defend ourselves against the blows of the enemy and to actually strike blows ourselves. And the, the sword of the Spirit is, of course, your Bible. If you have your Bible or your phone, hold that up this morning. Say, I've got my sword, Pastor. Say, I've got my sword, Pastor. you got your sword, which is divinely powerful to the pulling down of strongholds. I love this verse. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Beloved, the Bible is our God-given spiritual weapon that we must use if we hope to effectively fight against the enemy. We know that Jesus Himself, we talked about this earlier, used the Word as a spiritual weapon against Satan in the wilderness. You recall how He was tempted. We won't go over that again. But He wielded the sword of the Spirit to effectively destroy the arguments of Satan. There's no greater weapon in our arsenal than the Word of God. So wearing the, the whole armor of God is essential, but, but to stand in the battlefield with nothing but the armor and our sword is still not enough. We must have the full armor, we must have our sword, but we must have something more. There's one additional weapon, and that's the weapon of prayer. It's by and through prayer we put on the spiritual armor and we defeat the enemy. Now we've got to remember that the context of our message is prayer. Jesus is teaching us to pray for protection and for deliverance. The Apostle Paul also exhorts us to pray. In verse 18 of that same passage in Ephesians, we read, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Prayer is the realm in which spiritual warfare is waged. And if we're going to use the weapon of prayer effectively, we must use it with persistence. We're, a, we're in a continual war, beloved, and we must not let up. We must always be on the alert. We must pray and pray and pray and pray again. We must ask God to enable us to be clothed with His armor and take up the sword of the Spirit. We must ask Him to bind the enemy and His power. By the most powerful weapon of prayer, you and I can do battle in the heavenly realm. Now listen, we must use the weapon of prayer not only for ourselves, but also for others. We're, we're called to pray for the saints, right? Just think about that. Your prayers can have a direct effect on other folks. Your prayers can bless them. Your prayers can lift them up. Your prayers can impact their lives for Christ. Your prayers can encourage them. 
Your prayers can keep them from falling. Your prayers can help them fend off attacks from the enemy. Your, your prayers can impact situations on a global scale. There's no place in this world where your prayers cannot touch lives. Of course, the obvious reason we're to pray for all the saints is that just like us, they're engaged in a great battle. Praying for one another is helping one another to fight that battle. As we intercede for one another, we need to remember that we're engaged in the very ministry in which Jesus has engaged. Our Savior, even right now, at this very moment, is at the right hand of God interceding for the saints. He's interceding for you. He's interceding for me. The devil, on the other hand, is relentlessly accusing the saints before God. And of course, we shouldn't imitate the devil. We should follow the Lord and become intercessors, intercessors on behalf of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember, the emphasis of the Lord's prayer is plural. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Some of you know, based on your version of Scripture, that the model prayer closes with a doxology. Again, not included in many translations. It's not in the ESV. The doxology is simply this, and I'll read it from the King James Version. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It comes from the Greek doxologia. It's a combination of doxa, glory, and logos, a speaking. So a doxology is a hymn or a verse glorifying God. And we just say a doxology. We proclaim our recognition and our acknowledgement of the unique and supreme worthiness of our Father to be praised. And we can do that in worship through our prayers. We did it earlier through the songs that Scott and the team led us through. We can even just think it to ourselves as we silently offer up our prayers to our Father. It's an offering of praise to our Heavenly Father. And there's really no need to overanalyze this verse here. Most of you are aware, again, the earliest manuscripts available don't contain this portion of verse 13, which could mean that Jesus didn't even say these words. But I'm going to tell you, while it's not included in some of your versions of the Bible, including mine, I'll tell you this, it's nonetheless true. He is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. It's true, and it's hard for me personally not to add it when I'm reciting this verse because it's true, and it fits. By the way, it's reminiscent of 1 Chronicles 29, 11, where we read, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Now, whether or not Jesus said these words there that day on the Sermon on the Mount or whether some priest or scribe added it later, it is nonetheless true. His is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. From the time we have remaining, I want to offer some additional practical helps in the way of application when it comes to fighting temptation. The first thing we must do is be honest about temptation. I struggle with temptation as much as the next guy, perhaps on, in different areas and to different degrees, but I nonetheless struggle. I encounter it in my own life. And I've had many, many opportunities through the, through the years to speak with others about their sins and their temptations. And as I fight my own battles and I try to help others fight their battles, I find it helpful to, to go to some of the simplest 
of truths, to plain words that can be spoken in the face of overwhelming temptation. Remember, no one talks to you more than you talk to you. What are you saying to yourself when you're tempted? When tempted by desire to sin, one truth we can proclaim is that is not who I am. And we can say that, beloved, because it's true. Say, that's not who I am. As new creations in Christ, sin no longer has reign over us, no longer has control over us. We are free not to sin. When we accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we, once we did that, we are in Him. The old man is dead. Paul writes in Galatians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, we read, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You and I are now alive in Christ. We are one with Christ. And that means we have a new identity empowered by God the Holy Spirit. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Beloved, we have been grafted into the vine that is Christ Jesus. I am the vine, Jesus tells us in John 15, verse 5. You are the branches. Beloved, we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of, the son, of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We can proclaim that we are no longer who, what, or where we were because we no longer are who, what, or where we were. We're new creations. Those who are being molded into the image of Christ. But we're justified in the sight of our Father. Freed, delivered, adopted. We are holy. Say we are holy. We are redeemed children of God who have been and are being transformed. Who we are at the core of our being, in our heart of hearts, is eternal sons and daughters of the King. That's our identity. That's who we truly are. We are not of Satan. We are of Christ. We are saints. Beloved, be who you are. The second proclamation closely related we can make is that temptation has no power over me. Say, temptation has no power over me. You're losing a little enthusiasm. Is that because is that you don't really mean that? Say that again. Temptation has no power over me. The, the time when sin and temptation had control over us is in the past if we know Christ. Yes, we were once in the dominion of Satan, slaves to sin, slaves to unrighteousness, but that's no longer the case. When we placed our faith in Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, we were set free from sin's control over us. Paul tells us in Romans 6, verses 6 and 7, I'll paraphrase that, could it be any clearer? Our old way of life was nailed to the cross with Christ. A decisive end to that sin-miserable life. We are no longer captive to sin's demands. And not only that, if that's not enough, we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit who empowers us not to sin, but to instead joyfully choose righteousness. The only power that sin has over us is the power we give when we refuse to take hold of the sin-crushing strength of the Holy Spirit. 
Beloved, remind yourself often, sin has no authority over me. Sin has no authority over me. We need to say that all the time. The third proclamation we can make regarding the temptations we face is this. You always promise more than you deliver. Somebody say amen to that. Sin always promises so much and yet delivers so little in the end when it comes right down to it. You think back to the garden, to Adam and Eve. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of the tree in the midst of the garden, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You think of that exchange and what their transgression actually delivered to them. And if you want to learn exactly what that is, read from Genesis 3-7 through Revelation 22, verse 21, and you'll find out. Remember what sin promised to Abraham, to Samson, to David, to Judas, to Peter, to Ananias and Sapphira, and then compare that with what it cost them. Listen, beloved, if we'll just give Scripture an honest read... With just a modicum of understanding, we will surely not miss the huge chasm that exists between what sin promises and what sin actually delivers. For that matter, take an honest look at your own life. And we see that vast gulf, do we not? Sin promises delight, but it results in sorrow. Sin promises pleasure, but ultimately brings disgrace. Sin promises life, but ultimately delivers death. Sin promises freedom, but brings with it its own shackles. It promises heaven, but it delivers hell. Sin always, always, always lies. The temptation to sin is inevitable when you're guided by the passions of your flesh in this sin-filled world. But the actual, listen, the actual committing of sin is by no means inevitable when you are made new in Christ Jesus. Let, let us learn to speak the truth of who we are and what we are, and more importantly, of whose we are to the temptations that will surely come our way. All of us have had thoughts in our life that go kind of like this. Temptation... Oh, preacher, come on. I can handle temptation. And anyway, if I do fall victim to temptations, it won't be that bad. The stuff that tempts me and the sins that I commit, they're not as bad as some other people that I know. After all, I live under grace, not under law. All my sins, past, present, and future, have already been forgiven because I've trusted Christ as my Lord and Savior. And I get it. That's all true. And though we probably never utter the statements that I just read to you a minute ago, our actions do speak louder than words. And again, I get it. I get it because I've been there. And I'll be there again. We all have. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If I could just get a... Stay with me. Just just lock in and stay with me for just a few more minutes. I want to remind you of some things, some truths we all need to remember and to remind ourselves of regularly. You think for a moment, my brother, my sister, that our Savior left the glories of heaven where He had coexisted with God the Father 
from before time as we know it began. He left behind sorrow-free, death-free heaven to take up residence in a world stained by sorrow and defeated by death. Remember, He who filled the earth with His glory willingly took on human flesh and frailty. That He who is God the Son had equal status with God the Father, did not count that equality as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Remember that he who was and is the King of kings and Lord of lords was born not in a palace, but in a manger outside an overcrowded inn. Think for a moment, beloved, the God of law was born under the law, yet met every requirement of the law perfectly. The God who formed and fashioned the universe labored alongside His earthly father in a carpenter's shop. The one who binds devils in chains was tempted by Satan after fasting 40 days in the wilderness of Judea. And because He Himself suffered when He was tempted, He's able to help those who are being tempted Remember that the God of incomparable strength grew weary in his earthly travels. He spent, he spent hours, he spent himself bringing healing and hope to the diseased and the downcast. Remember that he, the perfect innocent one, was and is himself judge over all humanity, was arrested, tried, condemned, and crucified by imperfect men wielding power they, would only, they only had because he had given it to them. Church family, let this truth resound in the depths of your being. The giver of life was put to death, but before he died... God the Son, who was from eternity, who had always been one with God the Father, was separated from God as He took on your sins and mine. And the sadness of that separation, I suggest to you the worst of the tortures He endured that day, caused our Savior to cry out from the depths of His being, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think about this, believer. The same head before which angels cast down their crowns was pierced with a crown of thorns. That mouth from which flowed the most eloquent, the most powerful, the most truthful, the most relevant, the most enduring words ever spoken before or since was charged with blaspheming the one who sent him to proclaim that truth. That face which from before time began gazed upon the Father was spat upon by those who beat and tortured him. Those hands which alone are worthy to open the scroll sealed with the seven seals were nailed to a rough-hewn Roman cross. Those feet that had walked across Palestine to bring the gospel of grace to offer redemption and release were nailed to the cross for your sins and mine. Those ears which had heard, and deservedly so, the praise of men and of angels as He hung on the cross heard not praise, but ridicule and scorn from the mouths of those He would forgive, even while the echoes of their derision reverberated down Mount Calvary. Those eyes which had always looked upon the hopeless and the helpless with such tenderness and compassion 
were closed by the darkness of death. Jesus endured the humiliation and the torture of crucifixion. He inhaled the stench of Golgotha as He hung there dying. And our Savior drank the cup. The cup of His Father's wrath. The cup that was meant for you. The cup that was meant for me. And He drank it all. Every drop of it. He died that we might live. That we might know forgiveness of sins. That we might be free from the just condemnation our sins deserve. That we might live forever with Him in glory. Beloved, that is the cost of His co-heirs, I remind you. That's what we are. The cost of our yielding to temptation. That's the cost of the sin that you and I too often desire to enjoy. Beloved, let us diligently guard against allowing our desires to tempt us and lead us to sin against the one who is all of that, who has done all of that, who has promised us, has actually gifted us with an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, that's being kept in the glories of heaven for you and for me. Our Father in heaven, lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we... Uh, are overwhelmed every time not just often Father but every single time we contemplate the grace that bought us life the mercy that has forgiven us our sins the hope Father the blessed hope that we have in your Son, Jesus Christ, of an eternity with you in the glories of heaven. Father, it's overwhelming to us. And Father, we are equally overwhelmed when we contemplate the travesty of our yielding to temptation, though forgiven, though forgotten Father we recognize there are so many times that we are disobedient so many times that we sin against you and your holy word so many times that we fail to be obedient to what you're calling us to be and to do that too is overwhelming we're thankful Father today that your Holy Spirit is alive and well within us we pray that you would fill us to the full with your spirit that out of that overflow, Father, we might be able to minister to those around us. That out of that fullness, we might, we might walk closer to you. 
more obedient to you, in a manner more pleasing to you, Father, that we might be evidences of your grace to a lost and dying world. Father, I want to pray for those who are here this morning. And much of what has been said has been for them beyond what they might imagine they would hear coming to this place this morning. This talk of those who are aligned against you. I, I, I pray, Father, today for those who have yet to receive your Son, Jesus Christ, that they have heard afresh and anew what your Son did for them on the cross of Calvary. And that they have they've heard what He did for them on that dark Good Friday. Their heart this morning has been pierced and they are drawn to you. Your Spirit is opening yet in this moment their eyes that they might see the glory of your Son. I pray today they would yield to that drawing and yield their life to your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for those who are searching for a church home. Lord, they know that's what they need to do. They know they need to be in a, in a body of believers that adores you, that worships you, that obeys you, that teaches your holy word faithfully, that goes out in obedience to the great commission you've given us to take your gospel to the ends of the earth, to baptize and make disciples. Father, we know that's a difficult process, and we pray that as they seek your will, whether it be Richland Baptist Church or another good Bible-believing, Bible-teaching group of blood-bought believers, I pray you would just give them assurance, Father, when they find that place, and they would take the step of courage that it takes to unite with that body of believers. We pray all this in the strong name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.